Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. G'day everyone and welcome to this week's guest, Professor Gary Martin. Gary, how are you? I'm very well, Ian, and yourself? Very well, thank you. How do you become a professor? Talk me through that process. Uh, uh, that's years and years and years of working and studying in a university. Um, yep. that's, that's where that ends up. In my case, um, mine was through uh, lead- leadership in universities. Awesome. And I feel like we should go straight into that now because you mentioned there that uh, when you were moved, you moved up into that space of working in leadership in, in universities, it wasn't quite what you were expecting. So tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, look, I thought that um, leadership in a university, um, uh, you know, obviously it is an honour and um, lots and lots of challenges and I thought that it would be relatively easy um, to go from being in an academic role to to a leadership role uh, in, in universities and, and, and very senior ones too that I held. Um, but um, I found in universities that it is actually management or leadership is not necessarily seen to be uh, something that a lot of academics aspire to. And as soon as you cross the boundary from being an academic into a, into a more an administrative type of role, um, People wonder what your motives are, uh, what your agenda is, and what you're going to do for them. And I think it's also partly because universities are structured. If you think about uh, most universities have schools or faculties or divisions, they're structured that way across the board. And what happens with those is uh, they kind of run like their own businesses within one big business. And so they have to align uh, with what's called the centre of the university or the central leadership and because they're so different, so different, um, they don't always align uh, um, uh, with with what a university is trying to to do overall, um, and for obviously for good reasons sometimes as well. So it puts um, sometimes leaders in the meat in the middle, if you like, uh, you're the meat in the sandwich of. Uh, what the university wants to do, you understand what a faculty or a school wants to do, and somehow you've got to bridge the gap between those two. Yeah, and the word that came to mind was it's almost like there's a lack of trust when you step into that leadership role, and then it's almost like what you're saying there, your job to then build that trust between all of the different areas. Yeah, that you, you do you do need to uh, build trust enormously, uh, and that, that actually is not a... You know, you can't go out and say, I'm going to build trust with the whole community. You, you need to build trust with individuals. You need um, to build trust with groups of people. You need to, to build trust with whole faculties. So it's actually quite um, a lot of your time is actually doing that. And part of it is doing what you say you'll do um, and, and being very transparent about it as well is really important. Now, you could say that these things are... Um, important in every organisation, and they are. Uh, but the, the nature of um, universities where you have people who are taught to critique decisions and taught to critique uh, information makes yeah. it even more challenging because everything, if you like, that's done is critiqued in not just a small way but a very big way, uh, and that's part of the, the challenge of working in it. It is also part of the enjoyment. Uh, once you once you find yourself in those roles, uh, knowing that 
a decision or a direction is not going to be easy can actually be quite motivating as well. Um, oh, yeah. But my initial perception of what it would be was quite different uh, to the reality of leading in a university environment. Yeah, well, uh, I imagine really fulfilling by, by being able to create those shifts you need to. And we'll come back to that because this is part of what you do now, right? So you've gone from, from being in that place of university and now you're at the Australian Institute of Management, WA. So tell me how, how did that transition happen? Like was that an opportunity that was presented to you? And then now talking about more about the work that you do now specifically. Yes, uh, so um, I, I was at a university for 21 years and I worked through from being a principal tutor to a lecturer uh, right through to a deputy vice-chancellor and a senior deputy vice-chancellor then I had a stint as an interim um, vice-chancellor. And uh, while the position for Vice-Chancellor at the university that I was at was advertised um, globally, um, I applied for that job. I didn't get the job. Um, and uh, when I didn't get the job, um, I uh, eventually decided that I would stay uh, where I was uh, in my role as a, as a second in charge. Um, and so I was satisfied with that. Of course, I was also um, quite uh, upset at the time, as you can imagine, that I didn't get the role after being in similar roles for, um, or, or in, in training, if you like, uh, for over 10 years in, in executive type roles in university. Uh, but there was a push for a, a global leadership and uh, a, a, a person from the UK got appointed to the role. Nevertheless, um, I had a great job and I made the most of that. I got through that by trying not to overthink um, decisions and so on, um, which is quite often uh, what I do do to get over difficult um, circumstances or disappointment. I try not to overthink them now and I've learned that that's the way to do it. Um, and after a period of time though, I was approached if I um, had any interest in the role that I'm holding now. And my initial reaction was, no, I'd like to stay and do what I'm doing. Um, I know a university. I was sort of thought, well, I don't know anything outside a university, but I really did. Uh, so um, I, I, I just thought I'd stay where I was. Uh, and anyway, the company that was leading a search for the position I've got now came back and said, well, you know, just have a chat. So I thought, well, yeah, I might step out of my comfort zone, have that chat. Once I'd had that chat, I thought that's exactly uh, uh, the type of role that I would want to go into. Um, and then I, uh, within months, six months, I was in this new role, which is no longer new. It's actually, I've been in the role for 10 years now. Still awesome. feels new. Say that last bit again, sorry. It still feels new to me because every day is every day is different, and that's what I love about uh, this type of work. Yeah, brilliant. So tell us a little bit about what what you do now, like the day to day. Like what what does your role entail? Yeah, it's really interesting my role because it it evolves from year to year. It depends what's happening that year. Um, if you were to think about say two years ago when COVID um, first hit, I my role was to try to have the business continue to succeed in some shape or form because our business is very much about a face-to-face -face interaction. We have virtual courses as well. Um, but when things move so that people weren't coming into businesses, and that did occur for a, a while in, in, in Western Australia where people were very hesitant to leave um, their workplace or leave a remote working situation, uh, that meant that we went from having maybe, you know, two or 300 people coming in each day to five or six to zero. And of course, this sort of business means that if there's nobody coming through the door or nobody uh, participating in a virtual type program, um, there is no revenue, but there's all the bills that go with uh, that so my role then was to develop a plan to do more online which we were able to do um, to downsize unfortunately we did lose um, staff during that time because 
there wasn't the work, um, so we lost people during that time, and that was a difficult uh, time to try and, you know, um, uh, look out, look at what was best for the business while also looking at uh, what might work for some people um, and where they're at during their career. So there was that to deal with as well, um, and trying to get through that what was a difficult year um, was the main part of that role. And again. Um, it was all about uh, not overthinking um, particular decisions. Certainly you have to think about them, but then if you keep thinking about them and keep thinking about them and keep thinking about them, you get dragged down um, and you end up feeling like you're a failure and you're not going anywhere. And you're no good to anyone when that actually happens. And in a situation like COVID, really did need to be... Um, uh, very positive outlook, even though there was doom and gloom, doom and gloom all around it. So, as I said, I think it's it is about um, not overthinking things. Think about them, but then don't overthink uh, decisions and ways you're doing things. Because if you do, um, you know it, it will drag you right down. So that was one year in this business. Other years have been challenging as well because the economy in Western Australia was. Um, in the lead up to COVID was quite difficult. Um, price of iron ore has, uh, was low, uh, it's now higher. That affects all businesses in Western Australia because it's um, very much driven mining drives the economy or mining and resources drives the economy. And uh, when people um, are not in a boom period in Western Australia, then all businesses struggle to a certain degree. I mean, people talk about a two-speed economy during that time, but many businesses actually fail um, and some um, have difficulty or challenges surviving. So I think a big chunk of my time was surviving um, uh, prior to COVID, uh, and we were just starting to get on top of things again when COVID hit. So. It, it's always for me in this sort of business about looking at uh, what our members, our clients want and trying to align the business with that um, or those needs. And that's what the biggest part of my role is. It's, a, it's that which is really, we're talking about our strategy. It's getting the best people uh, in the organisation to make sure that we can achieve uh, what we set out to do as well. Um, and that, they're the two big things. It's a strategy role as a CEO, but also then making sure you've got the best people um, to ensure that you're going to achieve what you set out to do. Yeah, wow. Uh, again, I can see that massively challenging work, but massively rewarding at the same time. Yeah, look, I think um, the, the sort of work, um, you, you look for the successes um, as well and uh, there are many of them that happen along the way, even even small successes. Uh, I think you can you you should use those to to bolster your resilience and to um, be a sign that things are going to move uh, forward rather than backwards. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned there that that, that not overthinking is sort of one of the three key areas that you really have focused on throughout your career. If you look specifically around the last two years, and I guess from that broader lens also, you know, following the different economic uh, ups and downs of, of WA, how did you deal with, because I imagine you would have had to do a fair bit of thinking, you know, processing a lot of information and, and all the different strategies that you would have come up with. How do you actually help? How did you do that yourself in a way that we can help other people understand that process? Because I think you... It's something a lot of people are dealing with at the moment, that mm. uncertainty and then getting stuck in that loop of overthinking. So some really like how you dealt with it and, and any tips you have through that, I reckon really yeah. beneficial. I, I, th I think what I was really trying to say is that in the lead up to making decisions, it requires deep thinking, in fact, and lots of it. Um, so certainly thinking about things, weighing up, the pros and the cons, the consequences of different actions, um, the trying to anticipate what might happen if you uh, pulled this lever to produce that, um, all these sorts of things that go through your mind, reflect on, uh, on things, that's really, really important um, work. And that then 
helps you to make those decisions. But I think the where people uh, end up pulling themselves down is once they've made a decision and they're getting on with stuff, they shouldn't second guess their decisions. Um, if you've talked to people along the way that you needed to, if you've thought about things and you've engaged in that deep process up front, you shouldn't, you sh and you should be confident in your decisions that you've thought about stuff and that you're going to progress stuff. You come unstuck if you then start to question yourself after. And that's what I mean by overthinking. So you could be the sort of person that goes home after you've made a decision and spend the next week thinking about stuff uh, that you've done and that you'd already thought about up front. Right? So it's duplication of what you actually do. Now, you can't stop that in many cases, but you should try to change your path, do something else, avoid going on and thinking about the same things that you've already th thought about because you'll start to unravel and you'll think you made the wrong decision uh, if you do that. And that then drags you down and you're no good to anyone. If you're down, you've got to be uh, up or positive or have a have a positive outlook. So I think the thinking comes um, at a particular point in time, and that is before you make decisions. When you come to make another decision, reflect on the decisions that you made before, by all means, but don't uh, go into that habit of, as I said, uh, overthinking things immediately after you've done things because it's 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 it, it actually does damage you. Yeah, and I know that with with all of these key things that we take forward in our life, they usually come from our own experience of having to deal with exactly that. So can you think of a time where where that overthinking really has weighed heavily and how that impacted you? Yeah, look, I, I think even, um, you know, most recently with, uh, with COVID, when um, people uh, were... Uh, made redundant, uh, I think there was a period of time there that um, uh, I, uh, I, I felt uh, really bad about what had happened. Um, people that, have, that I'd known for years um, uh, were departing uh, the organisation because we didn't have the resources at that time to, to, to keep uh, people there. And I certainly thought about that a lot. Um, after the decisions. I had to think about it again before. And when I did that, I found that I wasn't as effective day to day because I had some sleepless nights. Um, it was constantly with me, the thought of people, you know, um, not having a job and having financial hardship. Um, and of course, that actually does impact your day-to-day -day work. And as I was saying, I would come into work and I would be tired. Um, I wouldn't be ready to embrace challenges uh, because I didn't have the energy or the positivity to do them or to, to approach them. So I had to learn very quickly uh, to overcome that. Um, and, and, and that meant um, stop thinking about it, um, have some faith in the decisions that were made and and keep moving and think about there's still a business to run, uh, still people in the organisation, you still have to make sure you do the best for them. Yeah. So a lot of what you've talked about already with leadership, it comes down to the strategy and the people. That's right. And you've got to keep focused on that. Uh, if you let thinking about the past too much, uh, interfere with that. Um, you don't. You don't actually take the step forward that you need. You keep taking steps backwards. Yeah, hundred percent. It's hard to explain, um, Ian, but it's just after you've done that a few times, you learn that. So if you you feel that you're going into a overthinking cycle, you you, you learn to to snap that um, or nip that in the bud. Yeah, it's a really interesting space. I know for me personally, meditation has been a really powerful tool to, to help me get back into that space to to just focus on the now moment. Yeah. But as you say, it, it can be quite challenging. I think it's like anything, the more that you develop that skill within yourself, the better you get. And in a leadership position, it's important for us to continue to push ourselves, right? Continue to, to find ways to grow because other people's careers, livelihood, well-being are right. all the yeah. All depending on us, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that is, that's exactly right. Uh, people do depend on you and, and you, you, you don't want to let people down. 
uh, once people have departed an organisation, um, you, you might feel like you've let them down, but there were other people that were remaining that you still had to focus on and um, have a strategy and build, build a business uh, because we were substantially hit like most businesses. Yeah. So, Gary, what was your, the moment in your life where everything changed? That moment where you were looking at life from a completely different perspective? Um, I, I, I think uh, when I was, um, look, this started many, many years ago. When I, when I started as a primary school teacher years and years and years ago, um, I found myself uh, in a situation where I was so keen and enthusiastic, I used to do so much work um, that uh, people told me I needed to get a life um, I didn't have work-life balance. Um, and I think there were people uh, who didn't like what I was doing when I started out in a country school because it almost was showing them up in some ways. And that was not my agenda. I just loved what I did. And yeah. I was, you know, just out of university, wanted to succeed. I wanted to do the best for children. So I just work all the time. And... Um, so for me, that was I didn't think that I would get offside with people through hard work or overwork, I would call it, um, more than anything. I can see that now it was overwork, not hard work. Um, and, and so that was when I came to grips with the fact that the workplace is not this perfect world all the time. Right? And I guess from, from there on, in, <clears throat> there on <clears throat> I... I've had a real interest in workplace issues um, and and what happens in <clears throat> pardon me workplaces and how to inspire better workplaces and that happened way back <clears throat> pardon me in my career just have some water but I think the other thing that uh, at that same point is that people were telling me I had to have this thing called work-life balance, that you don't have any balance in your life. And what they normally mean by that is, you know, you've got eight hours of work, um, eight hours of sleep and, you know, eight hours of doing other things and your day is neatly divided into, into those things. And, you know, when people told me that, I, I believed that was the case. But now I think it, it is the biggest load of rubbish ever. <laughs> people, people set themselves up to fail when they say I'm going to have work-life balance because they never achieve work-life balance in the way that they want to and they fail every time. Every year, hundreds and thousands of people around the world say, this year I'm going to have work-life balance. <coughs> and, you know, by, by two weeks' time, as soon as they're back at work, if they've had a break, they fail because that's not how our working lives are. Uh, um, uh, actually work and it's even the just the term work-life balance it's work and life life uh, or work is a big part of your life so that's why I really off the idea of this of work-life balance because things don't work out that way at yeah. all so I'm much more interested in things uh, a, a concept now and way back then I, I was aware of it I couldn't explain it and that is more like work-life flow and let it let your work flow into your life and your life work into your 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 sorry let your work flow into your life and the rest of your life uh, flow into your work yeah so what that means is sometimes you're going to have to be more present in your personal life and spending more time in your personal life than you are in your working life um, or in your job and other times that will reverse so it's almost seasonable and for me you know it's almost like seasons the seasons change you have peak periods where you have to devote your entire attention or 90 percent of it to your work and other times when it's family or friends or whatever else you do and that really has worked well for me so if I'm working 12 hours I think, wow, that's good. Um, that's okay. I don't say, oh, wow, that was a horrible 12 hours. I think that was a great 12 hours. Um, and somewhere down the track, there'll be a reversal of that where I say, okay, well, now it's time to do some of this and I'll spend more time on doing other things outside the workplace. 
And I think if people can embrace that, learn to live with that, then they don't fail every time uh, they, they go for this concept of work-life balance, which, as I said, it just doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work also, Ian, is because now um, your work is connected um, in many cases to uh, the rest of your life. So you go home and you're still going to get an email. You go home, you're still going to get a, a phone call. You could say that you shouldn't and, and that we should separate the two out. But even during the pandemic, those two have started to merge and integrate. And, you know, my view on all of that now is that why don't we say, well, this is inevitable that the two are going to come together um, and stop feeling so bad about it, but work out ways that you can maximise that. So how can you best use that to make your whole life enjoyable and, and achieve the goals? And if you can do that, uh, you want to win it. It's not easy, but you want to win it if you can do it. 100%. And you're, you're so spot on. The old models of how we do business just don't work anymore. And so, so I'm working here in my home and finding ways to integrate both perfect. So different times I'm taking the kids different places and, right. and, and it becomes, but part of it is having to shift the whole culture of a business, right? Yes. So was that something that you introduced to where you are now? And did you come across resistance from maybe some of those old school people that didn't see things that way? Uh, look, I, I think, you can't shift a business to that completely. I think that's, you know, you, you would like people to think that they were going to go for this model that I talk about. I, I talk first of all about myself and how I manage my work workload is I, I never consider it a balance. I consider it, it's not a balancing act for me. And I pass that on to other people and I explain to them how I manage it. But at the end of the day, there are people that have to to make, make, make that decision for themselves. You can't tell people, take a call after hours, but spend some more time on your personal life or, you know, you can't, you can't do that. You've got to let everybody, um, I guess, explore uh, how they want to do things and come up with what works for them. What I'm concerned with are those that, that things, it's not just about you, there's other things at play now and work and life do do come together regardless of, of, of what, what, what happens. And so for me, it's trying to encourage people to um, make the best of that situation. So if people are, for example, working from home, um, there might be times in the day where they have to be present and available and there might be times when they don't. And they should be able to manage their time after that. Um, you know, if they, if they start work at six and then take children to school, um, they've got to agree with the people that employ them about when they're actually going to be, the core hours they're going to be available and then work around that. Um, and then some jobs require that you're, you are there for a particular point in time. That might be the whole your whole working day. So, as I said, there's no hard and fast rules for any of this. It's actually about what you negotiate uh, on your personal style, but with your with your own personal style and your own personal needs. But overall, I think if people embrace a concept um, of work, that work-life balance, where you divide things into equal bits, I think you get tripped up pretty quickly. Yeah, I agree. To me, it's a question of priorities. Hmm. Like, most people, when it comes down to it, when something terrible happens, like they have a, a difficult moment, they know what's most important. Like mm. for me specifically, I remember one of my staff members passed away mm. and like that was just one of those moments where you're like, oh, no, none of that's important. Mm. Like what's most important is my family and my health and how often do we put work higher up the list of priorities when it comes down to it, it shouldn't be there. So, yeah, go. No, I was just going to say, yeah, I think a lot of people achieve that realisation over the last couple of years uh, and, and uh, what comes first. And a lot of people are, uh, are considering that now. Um, there's a, been that sort of shift in terms of people um, wanting to, um, do, you, do you live to work or work to live? Uh, and people are, are actually 
starting to embrace or consider that particular concept because there's certainly been a shift uh, from people's thinking that um, you actually, um, the, your life comes first and what we do as part of that um, is, is secondary rather than work is your life and then you, you live basically. It's, it's an interesting thing and a lot of people grappling with it through the pandemic and a lot of people haven't got an answer to it. Um, but it's, it's actually not that complex. It's actually about priorities at a particular time, what you make your prior, priorities, as you've said. Yeah, 100%. One of the things that I think, uh, well, I know can be a challenge is it's one thing to know it, but when we've got these old patterns of behavior. So if you think about people who are so driven because mm. they're trying to prove people wrong or there might be an underlying pattern of behavior that's like showing their worth, their value, um, whatever it is playing out, we can know that we want to change things, but unless we change that pattern, then we will continue to be stuck in these loops. So as a, as a leader, how do you help your staff to be able to change those patterns so that they can approach the work environment and that balance from a more um, even keel? Yeah, I, I think what people really value, you know, people people look for all the sorts of perks that can come in to a workplace. And, um, you know, there's certain things that people people might think it's great if you provide them with a meal and stuff like that. But what they really need assistance with is how to um, manage some of the things that they have uh, outside of work as well. And so, you know, we have a break coming up and uh, we can't give everybody Thursday off before the public holiday on Friday um, because we still run a business. But what we are doing is here is giving people more time to recharge. So half of our staff will be taking an extra day's leave um, on top of their regular entitlements on Thursday and half will be taking an extra day on the Tuesday. So doing little things like that um, again, helps people to balance. Not only does it help them to feel, I think, appreciated, but it also helps them to get on with uh, the other parts of their life um, as well. And I think just gestures like that, same stuff that we do around the end of the year, uh, we work out when um, staff um, can, can go on leave, um, in addition to their leave entitlements and try to give people extra time. It's a moving feast. There's never any one time people have their leave entitlements, but I always try to make sure people get extra time. Um, and that is also is to try to reflect that concept of work-life flow rather than balance. You might have worked really hard five weeks ago, but now's the time to um, turn your attention to other matters and enjoy, enjoy other things. Uh, and I think also if you love what you do, then those issues are not anywhere as pressing as if you're in a job that you hate and then you always want to get out of the workplace. But more broadly, there's a series of things that I think that are troubling in our workplaces at the moment that, that cause people angst and they don't know where to, where to turn. Um, we say we value certain things in the workplace, but we quite often do the opposite. So, you know, um, people talk about, again, we'll talk about work-life balance, and they say to people, you know, you, you need to slow down and that, and then they pile the work on. So there's lots of these contradictions that stop people from, from actually having or experiencing other parts of, of, of their life. When someone says get some you know, balance in your life, but then they give you 10 extra assignments or 10 jobs to do, um, that means you're going to have to work on the weekend to get these done. Um, there's that sort of contradiction. We also tend to, in workplaces, tend to, to say that we favour this, this, this and this person, but what, who do we really favour in workplaces? Many workplaces favour the people that are going to work non-stop, they're never going to take a break and they're going to get everything done. And those are the people that have something to say and they're, they're loud. So we tend to focus on people that do certain things, yet we say the opposite. And I think that's why we have so many people in workplaces confused because on the one hand we're saying, you know, look after yourself, care, and we're doing all these things that stop people from 
uh, caring for themselves as well. Yeah, hundred percent. It's just lip service. Ultimately, you're not actually you're not actually living what you're saying, and that's not leadership at all. I, I want to come back to that, Gary. So I've made a note of that, but I want to come back to that moment when you were a primary school teacher, mm-hmm. and and then having that reaction from different staff. I, I want to sort of get a more of a feel for what that was like, how that felt, because I'm thinking about myself coming into a, a new career. Uh, I did a teaching degree as well, and uh, I didn't end up going into teaching, but but that would have been, to me, even in that environment would have been intimidating. Then to have people telling you that, what you're working to, all those different things, it must have been qu- quite a challenging time for, for someone just starting out in their career. Like, what, what was that experience like? Well, I think it was really stressful. Um, and, you know, if I cast my mind back to that, I was always thinking that as a, as a graduate um, in the workplace, I would have someone mentor um, me and uh, rather than I would have, you know, some people uh, try to pull me back or detract or make adverse remarks about what I was doing or how much I was doing or what wasn't sustainable or was this, you know, some of it might have come out of concern, other might have come out of um, jealousy. I was lucky that uh, the principal was a great supporter of me and if you don't have support from the leader in an organisation like that, you do crumple um, and I had that support so that that sort of helped. Um, but when I think about some of those experiences too, even though they were difficult um, for me, they also helped to shape me and where I was as well. And they taught me a few uh, a few things. As I said before, uh, you know, it dawned on me that workplaces not necessarily perfect places. Um, like the rest of your life, if you like. Uh, there's always ups and downs, and, and I think I learned that pretty quickly. Um, I don't think others necessarily had that um, experience in a workplace where they felt um, probably unappreciated, resented uh, sometimes um, and in, in their first year because uh, that could have the reverse effect. It could have the effect of you wanting to leave um, an organisation fast as well, particularly when you think about, you know, when most people go into a job, it might be particularly teaching jobs, it might be in a rural area, you leave friends, you leave family to do that. So you, you're sort of starting off afresh and or alone in some respects. So unless you have a supportive environment. So that's taught me that you do have to welcome people um, that come into an organisation because everything is foreign to them. They're learning everything from scratch um, and, you know, they might become come from a job where they've had a lot of support and they know people and they know the ropes and they come into an organisation and um, everything's new. Um, I experienced that. I was lucky, as I said, I had a principal to support me, a good leader to support me, but I did have some detractors that, and I was the first year out and it was just because I enjoyed um, doing a job and was enthusiastic about it. And people be quick, uh, unfortunately, um, to to try to bring people back, cut them back. Um, it's called, I guess, in some ways, it's called the tall poppy syndrome. We 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 tend to want to um, bring people back, cut them back if uh, they grow too far ahead and make others look bad. Now, that's not the case for everyone in that in, that, that I was there, but it only takes two or three people to make you feel uh, a bit miserable, a bit stressed, um, where all you wanted to do is uh, be an ideal type of teacher. And I think, I think there are other teachers that face that in their, in their first year out. And they always, they also um, get, uh, you don't know it, you haven't done it. So people are also quick to say that you know, sometimes first time in a workplace, you, 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 you're full of enthusiasm and you might come across as knowing it all when you haven't had the experience. People don't like that either. No, but to me, it's just a projection of their own insecurities. And, uh, and like you said, if they feel threatened because here's this young person coming and doing more than that, that might make them look bad. Hey, uh, you mentioned there around having that support from a principal at a time where you really needed it. Yeah. What, what an absolute gift for you 
mm. clearly to take that all the way through your career, to be able mm. to want to make a difference and make sure what you didn't have at that time from elsewhere but received from that external place, how fulfilling that is, how much value you bring by making sure that, that other people do get through that. So what, what does that give you in your life, that, that ability to, to make that sort of difference with people? Well, you know, for a start, I mean, one thing's clear that you know that you will impact people um, on people, or you'll have an impact on people, even if you don't think that you do. So, yeah. you know, even if you don't spend a lot of time with them, if you walk past them and you say hello, uh, that has an impact. If you don't, it has an impact. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned from how, is how you interact uh, with people. Um, and it's interesting too because there are some people that will then take that as you can, you know, feel free to interact. So in the office here, you can't see, but if, if, if we weren't doing this, my door would be open and I would have people come down and walk in all day, every day, uh, and you build a bond with people that like that because you know um, that. I tend to try not to walk around uh, to where other people are because then it looks like it's an inspection type of thing. I, I, that's why I left my door open. There was this thing called management by walking around where you walk around and you keep an eye on people. I tend to do less of that these days and I prefer people just walk into my office whenever they want to do. And, you know, a lot of people do do that. Um, and it's interesting because then I know them better as well. So I get to know people better when they do do that. I remember years ago there was... Uh, someone that was uh, quite miffed uh, that they didn't get considered for a particular position. And um, I have to say he was the only person in the whole organisation that didn't really come by and talk to me. So I had no inkling. So that's my fault too. I should have tried to get to know him, um, but he didn't get to know me. Um, and there was something about our relationship that he ended up being quite unhappy that uh, he didn't get considered for a job that I had no idea that he was had any interest in. So, you know, while I say uh, my door's open and people can come down, you've also got to think about well, who are you not talking to as well? Mm. And because just you not talking to people, even if you don't go anywhere near them, has an impact on them as well. So you've got to think about the layers of impact that you actually have on people. And I know just from being a primary school teacher many, many years ago that people have an impact around you. Your leader can have an impact around you. Uh, your people that you get on well with can have an impact. And certainly the people that don't like what you're doing in an organisation um, and want to kill your enthusiasm can have an impact as well impact all around you and it does shape you yeah it's a great point and we get to choose the impact that we take forward too which mm. which i love the choice that you've made through that now what i know is that when we have these different things that play out in our life they've often been playing out from a young age so mm. so talk to me like one what what was the support for you when you were growing up and what was those sort of areas where perhaps you didn't feel as much of that support and it felt a little bit like it did with that experience at school, maybe alone and so on? Yeah, I guess, um, yeah, it would be difficult to say this, but um, my parents weren't really, um, and I, you know, my mum's still alive and hopefully she doesn't hear me say this because she was a, a terrific mother, but they weren't attuned to... The direction that I wanted to take. Um, they ne had never studied, they'd never been to a university, um, they would have finished school early and things like that. So I never, I never want to point the finger at people uh, because if they haven't had an experience um, then they're probably not going to try and encourage um, their own children to take different direction basically. 100%. So yeah. they know what they know. Uh, but I always did want to do something different. I wanted to be a teacher for a start. I wanted to go to university. I did want to do all those things. Um, I had no intention of finishing um, school. Um, you know, early I wanted to go right through and then continue on, which is, which is, which is what I did. Uh, and so 
I think, again, as par parents these days have, have actually had a different range of experiences and a broader outlook. Um, the good thing about my parents is they didn't stop me from doing something that I wanted to do, but they didn't necessarily encourage me. I remember my dad saying to me, you know, oh, you want to be a teacher? Um, teachers, there's a lot of unemployment with teachers. Um, you'll never get a job, right? Um, and that was my dad because that's the way his father would have spoken to him and yeah. I spoke to, um, you know, he would have spoken to me that way, his father to him and, and him to me. Um, and I resisted it. So I didn't say, oh, well, I'm going to do it anyway. I just did it, okay? I didn't, didn't consult. I didn't ask. Um, and I think when I did complete and I did very well, uh, and got a job immediately that I, you know, qualified as a teacher. Uh, they saw it and they were really excited and happy for me. But because they hadn't had that experience, it was a different thing. So that was actually hard for me because I was the only person to actually do that um, in, in my family. And it's not that, as I said, that I was discouraged. It's I wasn't necessarily encouraged. Uh, and these days... What I know is I encourage people to do what they want to do, um, what their passion is. And that was my passion at the time, to be a teacher. And, you know, I think that probably being a teacher and doing that and going through uh, and doing that has actually helped position me for everything that I do now because quite often teachers underestimate the skills that they've actually got yeah. um, in not only studying, first of all, but then their experience as a teacher really positions them to do uh, any type of role that is about people. And that includes being a CEO, um, you know, a high-level manager, an executive manager, a manager, a supervisor. There's so much more that teachers can do um, through what they've got. They just don't see it necessarily. Yeah, well, sadly, I know there's a, a growing trend of teachers getting out because of all the hoops they've got to jump through and it's taken them away from what got them into it in the first place. So it would be good for them to hear that, to realise that they can work in any people-faced environment. I feel if your mum heard that, then she's not going to look at that negatively because, to me, that's what we've all been through. We have sure. Our parents have experience. Their parents had experience. It's no one's fault about how things flow through. It's just, yeah, we only know what we know and we tend to look through that lens. What I love is that you've been able to, even from that young age, go, well, okay, I hear you. I know what I want to do and I've made that choice. Then carrying that through, like I said, that's the gift, right? That Being able to provide to people continually through our life mm the very thing that at different times we didn't necessarily get. Man, that's, there's just so much value in that. Yeah, they, I think I'm not the only one that's seen that. I think there will be a lot of cases where people have done stuff, even if they haven't had that encouragement. I wouldn't say I didn't have support because I did have the support. You know, I, I was helped right through studying. I worked part-time. I actually had three part-time jobs while I was while studying and my mum and dad supported me as best they could. I wasn't the only child in the family as well. Yeah. Um, and so when I think about it, there was a lot of support there, but at the time you don't think that's support unless someone's saying, yeah, that's great what you're doing. Um, so I think that's the lesson is uh, try and encourage as well, uh, not just the... The, the more subtle encouragement because when I, as I, as I said, now that I say it, I think about all the things that they did do that if they hadn't done, maybe I wouldn't have got through. Um, you don't see that at the time, of course. You only see it now. 100%. And this is the part that I uh, love to help people with because that, that was exactly my experience. Like mm. I was looking for so many years, looking through life at all what I didn't get, all those things I didn't get from my parents, yes. what I, you know, and then blame and all those places that just keep you trapped. And then yep. turning your attention to, wow, look at all the amazing opportunities that came. Yeah. Like my dad, my dad had the courage to go and work in a, a small country town as well, one teacher yep. school, so really small. I don't think I would have had that courage. To, no, no, no one wouldn't have at that age, right? So what? So what a gift 
for him to be able to go forward and then and then have the life that he did and and I, and I, to me it's like it's such a powerful exercise to to take that moment to recognize and not just parents but all of those really important people in our life and and how much they influenced us so if you look at how you're going forward now what's what's your intention for creating more of that influence not just in your role now but in the world in general yeah it's um it's an interesting thing because uh as i as i said right back from when i was a primary school teacher i had an interest in non-primary school matters like workplaces right around the world what do they look like what happens and so on and i you know um always had those things in the back of mind only now can i can i take my experiences of many workplaces out more broadly and so um i've been lucky in this job that i've got that i have literally hundreds hundreds of people over the years talk to me about what happens in their workplaces and that's amazing it's a it's a privilege to hear for people to trust me in the first place to hear what happens in to them in their workplace and that's the good the bad and the ugly um, and so I've, I've got this this huge um, range of stories of different things that have happened that people have explained to me now I've taken those experiences and written um, short, sharp pieces around different issues that have been published in newspapers, that I published on LinkedIn, um, that I publish online in different uh, forums and so on. And I do that not because I've got the right answers. I do that now because uh, I want to start some conversations about particular matters. And so I've covered all sorts of issues that happen in the workplace via print media, via television, via radio, uh, via social media and trying to get some conversations going about some very difficult things like ageism in the workplace, like mental health issues in the workplace, uh, like bullying in the workplace. Um, and I guess for me, I never think of myself as an expert in those matters, but I think of myself as someone who's got some depth of experience in those that I can then share with others. Uh, and construct, um, I guess, some guidelines about what we should be doing for then to people to think about, to contextualise contextualize as well. So, you know, I see myself continuing in that vein about ha- getting people to have conversations about what happens in their workplace, and that's with a view to inspiring better workplaces. Love it. And to me, the, the, the words that really stand out through all of that is same strategy you don't necessarily have to be the expert but you know the strategy to help with the people and then the other word that came up there was one that you mentioned uh previously as well as trust and Mm -hmm. that ability for you to create trust and for have people to to trust you it's such an important skill so so can you share with the audience some tips on how they can get better at building trust and and the impact that will have yeah, look, I think, I think the number one thing is this. You keep your word. Um, if you don't keep your word, then people won't, won't trust you. And if there's a case where your word's not been, you haven't been able to for some reason, even though you made a promise, then you need to explain that. And I explain, uh, just to explain why trust is, is actually um, really, really important is because you won't get people in an organisation um, doing their best for an organisation and keeping in line with where an organisation is headed if you don't have this trust. Just one small, uh, and I'm waving my finger now, I want to show you why, One, just one breach of trust is a problem in an organisation. And there's a good way of explaining that. So bear with me, I'm just going to get this piece of paper. Trying to get this piece of paper here. Okay. Here's my piece of paper, right? That's what trust looks like when it's at its peak, okay? That's trust. Smooth, everything's working okay. When you lose trust, a piece of paper ends up like this. All screwed up. And then, yep. Okay, that's loss of trust, right? Yeah. Now watch yep. this though. When I unravel this piece of paper, even though it might be difficult 
to see uh, exactly what it looks like on the screen, you can see that there's crinkles. And for me to try and get back that truss, I'm going to have to remove all those crinkles, which is going to be a really big job. In fact, I'm not ever going to be able to return that piece of paper to that. And that's why trust should be on your radar. Uh, you know. And I'm, now I'm not saying that everybody trusts me because there'll be people that I've encountered along the way that, that, that don't trust me and they never will uh, because they believe I've got you know, a different agenda. That's the case with every single leadership role. 100%. But your intent should always be to build trust in an organisation and that involves transparency uh, and that's where a lot of people can't. Uh, they think they've got to hide things from people. Sometimes there are things that can't go out to everyone, um, but people, it's the same with government, it's the same with not-for-profits, charities. If people feel that things aren't transparent, there's automatically going to be a loss of trust. If a leader loses trust because of an action, uh, then it's hard to go from that to that smooth um, feel that you get with a piece of paper. Yeah, yeah. 100%. I love that. And that's a great analogy. The crunched up bit of paper has all those uh, lines which aren't so easy to iron out. Gary, I get the sense that you are quite intuitive and you're, you're taking certain action because you just kind of like there's a certain knowing that that uh, comes into it. And to me, the best leaders that I've worked with have always had that sort of gut feel way of operating as well. So how does that come into to your leadership? And what's the benefit of that to, to the work that you've done? Well, I, I think, yeah, it's really hard because good leaders do have a gut feel. But I, the way I would describe it is, is emotional intelligence. So you need to be a leader with some emotional intelligence. I know that's a buzzword, um, but I'll simplify it. It's all about you being able to manage your own feelings um, yes. and also... Uh, try and read other people as well. That is very much a gut feel and that's very much can actually influence the way um, you you actually uh, interact with other people. The, the important thing I think is even if you can't read people very well and it's sometimes difficult and you misread them, you're more inclined to be able to read your own um, feelings as than someone else's and if that's what you're best at then you focus on reading your own knowing what annoys you knowing what triggers you and knowing that gives what gives you an adverse reaction that others um, that, that perhaps won't do you any favors down the track when you react badly to something instead of managing um, your emotions uh, then again, um, you do damage along the way. So being able to know what annoys you, what triggers you. Um, if I give an example, I don't like being told by anyone that I work with or anybody in my circle of friends or family, the same thing over and over and over and over again. If I get told something like repeatedly, maybe in the same five minutes, the same thing said to me, it tends to start to aggravate me and I start to snap and I might snap back. I know that now um, because um, I've learned that. So I'm aware of one of my triggers. You get a bad reaction out of me if you tell me over and over and over the same thing, I should be doing this or this, this, this and this. I only need to be told once. Now, it might be a petty example, but it's not petty for me because it really annoys me if people um, tell me uh, over and over again the same thing um, because I'm, they don't think I'm going to do it. Um, and I like to keep my word, so I do do it. Uh, so, so in all of that, I've learned now to manage that and not to have an adverse reaction 90% uh, of the time. I'm not per never. No one's ever perfect in these things. Never. But just being able to manage your... Um, you know, your approach uh, is really, really important. 100%. So what I'm getting from that is having that emotional intelligence is one of the keys to building trust, mm. to 
to be able to build trust and then sustain it? Yeah, I think it is. And um, over a period of time, if you know people, and you know you know yourself, uh, you know what the best way uh, to go about something, even if it's unpleasant. People think emotional intelligence is being nice to people. It's actually, it's actually not about that. It's actually about getting the best out of people and yourself uh, by monitoring people's feeling, by being human, in fact. Um, and you still make difficult decisions as a human. 100%. Uh, what is it? Uh, love is always kind. It's not necessarily always nice. No, so exactly. we need to be able to have those boundaries in a compassionate way, but just say, actually, that's not okay. And yeah. Uh, yeah, and and I love what you said there about being able to manage our own stuff and then helping others to manage um, their own stuff as well. To me, like that's at the essence of leadership. So I love that. And I feel like it's a great way for us to, to wrap this up, Gary. It, it really, we talk about the, the different things that you've talked about through this this uh, chat that having a clear strategy, mm. making people the central focus of, of that leadership space and then that trust building through emotional intelligence. Mm. You stick to those three things, you're going to be uh, well on the way to, to having the sort of leadership skills that will separate you from others. Mm. And I think for me too, um, it's it's the balance thing. Uh, don't set yourself up for failure by thinking that your life's going to be compartmentalised into eight hours of sleep, eight hours of work, uh, and eight hours of doing other things. But instead, go with the flow um, is more important. You you you, you tend to have work life imbalance, not balance. Um, and if you can accept that, and you're happy with it, because you've got to be happy with that. Uh, then things become a whole lot easier, particularly when you're in a leadership-type role. Now, I know I said we're going to wrap it up, but if you've got a few more minutes, I'd love to just dig into that some more, that going with the flow thing. And again, like to me, uh, an important part of leadership. So when I think about flow, I I also think of a a sporting perspective where things just unfold effortlessly. also happens in in day-to-day life, those moments where where just like it's almost like you're seeing moves ahead. So is that something that you are aware of, of how you find that flow for yourself? And is that something you, you're able to pass on to, to the different other leaders in the business to help them with that as well? Yeah, look, I, th- I just think I'd pass that on to anyone that I encountered, whether it was someone outside the business, probably another CEO, managing director, um, because we end up, as I said, uh, talking about... Um, work-life balance with a group of people and we set them up for failure. But if we talk about their self-care instead uh, and how they might care for themselves and to read the signs that, you know, that they get from their own body um, about when they should change direction. So if you're working 12 hours a day and you're suddenly getting headaches and indigestion and you're feeling really tired, you need to change your direction for the next four days and take a couple of days off. That's what I mean by work-life flow. Um, Sometimes you need to be present in one part of your life and present in other parts of your life. And that that comes down to this thing called self-care, where you look after yourself before you look after others, just like you do in an emergency on a plane, the oxygen drops down. If you don't have any oxygen, you're going to pass out. You're going to be useless to help anybody else. It's the same in any leadership role. It's the same in any role. If you're interested in helping others, you've got to go with the flow and uh, balance things your way instead of balance things neatly in life. Look after yourself first and then it follows through. And that's part of, that's what we really should be talking about when we talk about um, a balanced you know, work and life um, or work-life flow. It's self-care. Spot on. Uh, and it's so refreshing to hear you to say that from a leadership perspective and, and passing that message on and, and including what you said there about that, that sort of holistic approach of like listening to your body of like if your body's telling you something because to me that's something that well, particularly for, for those of us uh, male over 45, uh, there tends to be a reluctance to to look at the signs of the body and going and, and getting it checked out and actually not just treating the, the symptoms but treating the cause, like what's underlying there. So yeah. really, again, I really I honour you for sharing that because it is an important conversation for, 
for some typically stubborn uh, males who may not be um, prepared to do that. So mm. thank you. Yeah, that's a pleasure. I think you just end up being able to help people more if you look after yourself first. That's as simple as that. 100%. Gary, really enjoyed the chat. Thank you so much for coming on and having a chat with me. I appreciate it and I appreciate you. Thanks, Ian. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.